We'd Like a Word. And we're back. Welcome back to We'd Like a Word with Taylor Brown, with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan, if you can hear me. And Stephen Colgan. And we're also joined by listener Jason Grubbs from Michigan. Hello. Taylor, would you fancy reading a bit? Sure. I should just point out to people, Taylor's there in one of his favourite t-shirts that says, Support the Bitter Southerner. I can't read the small print. I think uh, Real Stories, Real South. Well, that's it's one true. of my favourite um, publications. I don't know if you guys have come across them before, but uh, they, they do really, really good work in this region, especially covering kind of the South where I grew up and the duality of the Southern thing, as they say, kind of the, the, the pride we have in being from here and the shame, you know, some of the heritage and all the duality of the Southern thing. So anyways, I try to support them when I can. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from chapter one, uh, Bloodhorn, and just maybe about three or four minutes, something like that. That'd be great. The first squeal split the air like a fault line, a fracture in the world. It sang across the acacia trees, the veiled of bunch grass and thorny bushes. Malaya pushed the bridge of her sunglasses higher beneath her camouflage ball cap. Her gloves were fingerless, the knuckles padded to protect her fists. Another squeal, heart sharp against the white rising sun. Malaya's face didn't twist or scrunch, only her nostrils moved, flaring. In front of her, the tracker, Big John, had his pistol out. It was an old revolver, patinaed like a grandfather's hand-me-down, over-large in his small dark fist. He was bent to the red grass, reading the way it had been canted, the passage of beasts and men. The spikelets rocked back and forth beneath his free hand, tickling his palm. Malaya watched. McCombie, she asked. Big John nodded, frowning. Rhino. The moon was still visible, fat as a spot lamp, hovering low over the green canopies of the acacias. Such a moon drew men like worms from the earth, and they came with guns and knives and saws. Malaya's team had found a break in the fence just before sunrise. The dawn light puddled in boot prints that crossed the road. A hole had been cut in the wire. The snipped end snarled outward where men, three of them said Big John, had slithered into the reserve. The squad of rangers had stepped down from the land cruiser and entered the bush on foot, following Big John in his oversized green fatigues, a long blade of grass hanging from his teeth like an unlit cigarette. Big John rose and waved them onward now, toward the squeals, spitting out the blade of grass. They stepped lightly through the sun-yellowed bush into the dappled shadow of a leadwood tree. We were talking, you know, about a sense of place. The thing that I really like about your writing is how you do anchor everything in the place. The descriptions are really powerful. Uh, you, you feel like you're there. You can feel the warmth of the sun. You can smell Africa. Yeah, thank you. I, I do think that my work is very tied to a sense of place. But again, that was never been, a, you know, a decision that I made or something I set out to do. It just has seemed to naturally happen. I do think that... Um, I've been blessed to grow up and then live in some areas where the land really meant a lot to me, gave me a lot of comfort, or to be honest, some areas where it did the opposite and I felt, you know, claustrophobic or I had a harder time. And so I've always seemed to 
feel the landscape a lot. Just it's part of my personality. And I think that filters its way into my, into my writing. I agree with Steve. So I've been driving around like you around Southern Africa and the vast space there, but the, the kind of the soil and the dampness and the trees and the shadows of the American setting, like Florida, Georgia, swamps and mm-hmm. islands, that was so vivid and kind of closing in and real. I thought, I don't think I'd survive there very long. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a foreign hostile environment for me. Uh, it's a place that I've thought since I was a kid, I think about the first colonists and um, people that were here and what a, in some way, savage, almost jungle, you know, I mean, it's almost subtropical here. It's uh, in the heat and the bugs and the humidity and it's absolutely gorgeous, but it can be a, it can be a pretty savage landscape in, in some ways. And I wanted to, to get that across and the ways in which it is almost like a jungle. And I was struck and surprised by uh, the feel of the book that it was about history, not not so much history of humans, but history of the planet and history of the evolution of animals, ancient animals going back to the tar pits and uh, and the future, maybe the extinction of society as we know it, that vast scale, that's quite unusual unusual maybe to succeed to pull it off in fiction yeah thank you and it's something that i do think i don't come across too often in fiction but it i really love it when i do and i I guess i wanted to try to get across a little bit of that sense of what we might call deep time or time on a geological scale um and i have been doing a lot of nonfiction reading about about that in recent years and about you know, as we're starting, I really feel like we're starting to understand what we have done with the planet, what society has done in the last hundred years in a way that's pretty bewildering, um, in some ways terrifying, in some ways not so much so, but, you know, this idea that, um, you know, scientists are now calling, you know, this the Anthropocene, you know, really humans, our effect on the world is, has you know, have given this name to this geologic period based on our own, what humans have done to manipulate the environment. And that is kind of fascinating to me. And so I wanted to get across a little bit more of that sense of time and maybe, well, I don't know, I guess just trying to get across that that sense of, uh, of deep time in a way that I hadn't really seen in fiction too often. And a couple of your characters seem to, they flirt with the idea of the collapse of this era, of the era of humans and talk about the seas rising, hurricanes, solar flares, ice caps melting, rewilding, humans having to go back to live in in caves. And is that you? Is that what you think we deserve or you hope for? No, 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 I don't think so. I mean, there are ways in which I think the characters, you know, they have viewpoints that are um, that are uh, more exaggerated, you know, certainly than than any of my own. uh, so, no, I was not trying to, you know, philosophize in that way and, and think that that's what we deserve. I do find it fascinating, though, that here we are in this time. The, you know, the book came out a month ago and, you know, we're all on quarantine and we're now seeing all these photos of this kind of urban rewilding happening right before our eyes right now. Right. I mean, I just 
came across an article last week where, you know, pictures of a puma loose in Santiago, Chile, um, you know, uh, deer loose in, in city streets all over the country, all over the world. Um, coyotes, you know, pictures of coyotes being taken with the, the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. Um, and uh, so certainly there's a little bit of this uh, life after people thing going on right now that I certainly didn't expect to be seeing in 2020, and uh, nor do I think it will stay that way. But I do think that it's what we're seeing a little bit now and maybe a little bit of what I want to do with the book was for us to see a reflection of, of you know, what our impact on the animal kingdom and uh, idea of being able to find ways with urban planning, with uh, moving forward to, you know, live in a little bit more harmony with the rest of the natural world than what we've done in the past. It's a good message. I hope people are listening. We haven't had um, haven't had too many puma over here, but we have had goats taking over a small Welsh village. I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> people actually sent me multiple people sent me pictures of those goats. You know, and like tagged Pride of Eden and and uh, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep, Goat City. I think one of the beautiful things about it is that we're all loving it. You know, in some ways, I mean, it is. Some of, you know, some of this may turn out to be, you know, issues that have to be dealt with in terms of, of wildlife. But for the most part, I think everyone finds it very heartening to see these are animals that weren't there before. They're just animals that couldn't come out. One, we weren't paying as much attention. And two, there was too much traffic, too much noise, too much just human busyness for them to be able to come out a little bit farther as they have. Right. And so I think it, we're all heartened by the idea that some of these animals are still around and that they can recover so quickly and, and can kind of come out from hiding a little bit. Plus the environment itself. The sky is clear. Uh, the waters are running clear in Venice at the moment, in Italy. Uh, the, I mean, the lack of smog in, in L.A., the pictures when you see now of L.A. are just fast. It's like, that's what L.A. looks like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like you've never seen it that way. Before. I literally did not recognize pictures of L.A. when I first saw them without the smog. I mean, I thought it was some kind of some kind of computer animation thing at first you know and so it's fascinating what how else would we have this such an unexpected hitting the pause button for civilization a a little bit right now which has some interesting parallels with the with the book i think i hope it's a wake-up call to some people you know jason have you seen any lions or tigers wandering through your neighborhood uh, no, but I live out. I live out the country, so we get deer regularly in our backyard. But in the Grand Rapids area, which is more uh, metropolis, they did show on our news footage recently, like a herd of deer running down the street where you'd never see them otherwise. One of the things I thought was interesting with the novel and was really a um, bold, if I can say so, choice for a writer is you, Taylor, chose to have one of the narrators in the book be one of the animals. And that was, uh, how did you approach that? How did you have the confidence to think you could do it? I, I mean, you did it extremely well, but uh, boy, that was uh, that was going out there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, uh, now when I look back on it, I see that. But I guess at the time, it just seemed the right thing to do. So I didn't necessarily put too much thought into it, which is good because I think sometimes, you know, if you overthink things, you could make uh, a little bit more of a fear-based decision and not move forward, right? That's one thing I worry about with with workshopping stuff too much and that kind of thing is that, you know, you can kind of realize it might not be the best idea and then you don't move forward. And sometimes what 
turns out really well is something that may not have seemed like the best idea to begin with. But I was really inspired by books like, so I came back around when I was a kid, I guess we'd had these bowdlerized, truncated versions of a lot of the classics that I read. And, and um, but I didn't know at the time, I thought they were just the full books. And a couple of them were White Fang and Call of the Wild. So I had read those as a kid and I thought I knew those books. And then only a few years ago, I, I went back and read them, the full things. And they were, there was a lot more to them, I guess, than I remembered having. There, one, they're a lot more, they're bloodier and uh, darker and harsher than, than I recall. But I just really, really love the way that Jack London was able to get inside of the animal's mind. And so I was really inspired by that. And I think I wanted to try my hand out at it. And I was inspired by what I've been reading nonfiction wise about big cats and their personalities. There's a incredible nonfiction book by John Valiant called The Tiger. But it's about a tiger in uh, Siberia, Eastern Russia. That is, this is a true story, um, was shot by a poacher, not killed. And it basically, in a very premeditated fashion, hunted down that poacher, went to his hunting cabin. He wasn't there, pulled out a mattress, pulled it in the woods. They could tell how long it had been sitting there waiting for the guy to come home, right? Kills this guy and then proceeds to track down and, and kill a number of other poachers and people that were related. And a lot of what John Valiant does in the book is try to get inside the psychology of that tiger and of tigers in general and of um, big cats and that kind of thing. And I found that fascinating. And I guess I wanted to get across to this. We just think of, you know, I think humankind, we think of ourselves as so superior, right? Because we're the cleverest of the animals. And obviously, you know, we have a lot of evidence to show that, you know, we are, but we sometimes don't respect these other creatures that have for eons and eons been also adapting to be so incredibly gifted at what they do right and so i think i wanted to get across a little bit of that and i didn't know how to do that except for getting inside of the animal's mind a little bit and it did there is anthropomorphic things going on i wasn't trying to do it in the, the most strict real fashion i could i was trying to tell a story with it but um i'm glad you enjoyed that part and I'm glad that I didn't overthink it too much and, and uh, decide not to do it. Seemed to me that you actually blur the line between human and animal because you've got uh, Mosi is the lion. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then you've got Horn, who's he's on the spectrum of wolf, Malaya on the spectrum of leopard, among other things. And all the main characters have a, a partner animal in some way that they inhabit, it inhabits them. Uh, so there's there aren't very many major humans who are merely human and that was something that i was kind of trying to go back to this idea i did that on purpose and one i like this idea of everyone for lack of a better term this sounds too weak for it not a power animal but something that an animal that they kind of identify with that they maybe hold especially sacred and that they take power from in a certain way and that's a very old you know long before Christianity and the modern religions of today, those were the, you know, religions were largely centered around animals. And I wanted to get back toward that a little bit and blur those lines. And also there's some interesting uh, nonfiction out there in research about people who live are surrounded by animals and work with animals on a daily basis. The line psychologically for us begins to become blurred between humans and animals. So there's a story of a couple of Germans that lived in Africa during um, World War II. They were basically on the on the run. I think they deserted or something. So they couldn't come home. 
and they couldn't go, you know, to the allies. And so they lived basically off the land for a couple of years and they, and they write about it and they, the lines started becoming blurred. They would dream about animals. They would dream that they were animals and the animals that would come to the drinking hole with them and those kinds of things, they began to see as familiars. And to not see as very different from themselves. The line between species very much became blurred for them. And I think thought that was really interesting. And um, if we think back to a time when we lived around animals that much more, there probably would be a little bit more of that, you know? And we certainly do that with our dogs. Think of our dogs as sometimes as, you know, our cats, as being members of the family. And we certainly give them human traits and uh, those kinds of things. There's a there's a British author um, called Charles Foster, and he wrote a he wrote a book last year where he actually lived for six months as various animals, living as they did and eating what they eat it to try and get inside the animals. It, it's the most extraordinary book, and I I ended up chatting to him at an event, and I said you know you really lived as 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 a fox and as a badger. And he goes, yep, yep, living in the woods, had to dig my own home, I had to find my own food, I had to eat worms. I mean, the man's possibly slightly unhinged, but it was quite extraordinary to see how he got inside the mind of the animal. And he really, really understands them now, really understands them. Absolutely. That's a level of research I can't say that um, I uh, might want to go that far to the, into the research. You know, that's, that's pretty amazing. Charles Foster, you said, is his name? Okay, I'm writing that down right now, actually. The is called Being a Beast. It was oh, Being a Beast. Being okay. a Beast, right. That's fascinating. I should put a question to you from listener Janice, who says, tell us about your special reserved seat. Um, yeah, so uh, that's actually in my, um, where I, uh, I usually write in cafes a lot. Uh, I don't write all the time there. My writing day usually starts there. And so um, uh, and I usually have a favorite cafe that I go to. And then, you know, I usually have a favorite spot inside that cafe. And for years in Wilmington, it was a, a place called Bespoke. And it was really my home away from home. You know, I mean, it, for those many years, I was single for most of that time. I lived by myself. Um, I worked from home during the day. So sometimes my real, most of my social interaction just came from, you know, going to the cafe in the afternoon and, and uh, working there. And um, so I had my spot and I would usually, you know, try to uh, sit at this window spot right by the counter. And um, I came back from, I had actually gone on a motorcycle trip. I was on a motorcycle trip on my way to New Orleans. Um, And during that trip, unfortunately, um, right after I passed through my hometown, I spent the night in my hometown, left, um, I was headed down. I was in Florida. My dad was in a motorcycle accident and, um, passed away and so I didn't end up getting back home to North Carolina for maybe six weeks and so I came home and um I came into the cafe and I noticed that one of the baristas was had her phone out and she had it kind of a funny angle like she was recording me and I couldn't figure out what was going on and then I realized they had put up that that plaque which says um you know this spot is reserved for Taylor the bodyguard brown um TG, uh, wait, GTFU. Yeah. Yeah. Or it, yeah, it it basically stands for, you know, GTFU. Yeah. Get the fuck up. Um, so, uh, that didn't mean a lot to me when I came home and, and, uh, and found that they'd put that up there for me that I had earned this, 
nickname they called me the bodyguard because I would stay until the place closed. And um, typically by that time, I was the only other person in there besides the baristas. And it was in a part of town where they sometimes had issues with crime and a number of arrests and stuff like that. And so um, it made the owner feel better that I was typically around till pretty late because a lot of the people working in there, you know, just, you know, kids that are either college kids or high school kids and, and stuff like that. So anyways, now, I'm, you know, we moved to Savannah here about six months ago. And so um, I've had my new, one of the first things I did was go on what I call cafe patrol and try to figure out, you know, where my new spot was going to be. So I probably got a long time before I, you know, maybe earn a plaque at the, at the new spot. We'll see. It's been one of the hardest things with quarantine is that I don't get out and go to my normal writing spot and have to do it all at home at different spots at home. That's not quite what I'm used to. Okay. We'll have a break at this point. That's the end of part two in part three, more of the same, but with a special appearance by Robin Ince. <laughs> 